Thanks, guys. Good to be back with you. Uh, I'm going to assume that most of you here were last night, so if you weren't, that, sorry about that assumption, but I'm going to kind of keep moving with what we built on last night. And we talked last night really about how special America is, that every 4th of July we set another world's record, uh, that world's record for longevity, the stability we have that other nations don't enjoy, the same with the creativity, the way we measure that. Uh, we also have the, the things that go with our prosperity. So there's a lot of things there that make us special. Well, we've been special for a number of years. We've had unique characteristics that always caught the attention of other people, and that's why Alexis de Tocqueville came to America in 1831. Now, Alexis de Tocqueville was a French justice official. He was in their justice department, you would call it. And he said, the way they do criminal justice in America, their, their crime stuff over there and how they treat it, it's really different. I need to go see what they're doing because they seem to have a lot of success. And the reason that it was of interest was in his nation, um, capital punishment was done by the guillotine. And so there had been 40,000 executions. That's a lot of crime going on in a nation, 40,000 executions. So he comes to America, but in America, and and we talked last night about uh, James Kent, and, and James Kent, father of American jurisprudence, this legal guy was really concerned about the crime wave we had in America as well. So it's not that France is the only one of the crime wave. We've got one. And James Kent, now, legal figure that he was, he was in charge of the entire judicial system of New York. Uh, he also served on the Supreme Court of New York for 16 years. And in that period of time, he tried 1,755 cases. So he is a legal guy, a legal expert over the entire judicial system there in New York. And he was really perplexed over the crime wave that they had in New York. Because in his 16 years on the Supreme Court, they had eight murders in 16 years. And he said, this, I, what's going on? How come so much violence? How come so much crime? What, what, what's happening here? A murder every other year? Chicago averages one about every 8 to 12 hours. New York City, one about every day. He's talking one every other year? Well, you can imagine Alexis de Tocqueville looks at that and says, I need to go see what they're doing. It's a little different from us. So he gets to America, he travels, he goes across the nation. Uh, he was looking at criminal justice, but he got over here and was so intrigued by what was here that he ends up writing about everything. He, he writes uh, about education, about elections, about transportation. He writes about religion. This is just such a different nation from what he's used to. And the way he kind of summarized it in his book was very simple. He said, the position of the Americans is quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no Democrat people will ever be placed in a similar one. Well, this is where we get the phrase American exceptionalism. That's, that's where the term comes from. It's way back then, we were already really different from all the other nations. And even today, we are. Now, again, as I mentioned last night, educators are trying their best to make sure we're not different from other nations. And so we don't, you know, we don't want to teach the American stuff. So with this perspective, the question then becomes, all right, how do you define American exceptionalism? Because professors today, I wrote a book a couple of years ago where I talked about America being exceptional. Man, it brought the professors out of the woodwork, and they just launched. And how ridiculous is that, America? All right, so let's define the term because they never do. They just always dislike the concept of America being unique. So the term American exceptionalism describes the unprecedented stability, freedom, and prosperity that's the result of institutions and policies that are produced by unique governing philosophy. Now, notice the sequence. The philosophy produces certain institutions and policies. Those institutions and policies are what produce the stability, the freedom, the prosperity. 
which means the most important part of American exceptionalism is that governing philosophy because that's what produces everything else. We like what's up top. And being, a, being an agricultural guy, it's like, and we were taught this in school, uh, the parts of a fruit tree. Remember the three parts of a fruit tree? The three parts of a fruit tree, you start with the seed, the, the part you plant is what you don't see. It's below ground. It's the, the roots that go out and sustain the tree. So that's the philosophy. From that, you grow the structure of the tree. You grow the trunk. You grow the branches. That's the institutions and the policies. And then what it produces up top, the fruit that's produced up top, well, that's the stability, freedom, prosperity. Everybody loves the fruit up top. Nobody pays attention to the seed that you put in the ground, but it's the seed that produces this up here. So if you want, if you want the good fruit, if you, in, in our part of the country, uh, in Texas, peach, peaches are what we grow. We have peach festivals and massive peaches. And Well, if you want the right kind of peach, you've got to put the right kind of seed in the ground. You put the wrong kind of seed in the ground, you're not going to get the right kind of peach. So everybody likes this, but nobody ever thinks about what goes in the ground except those who build it. And those who build, build those peach orchards, they think about what they put in the ground. So with all of that, that philosophy is the most important part. And that's the part we cover the least today in America, at least in thinking about it. So what we want to do is say, all right, what philosophy produced the uniqueness that America has? Because it came from a set of ideas, and obviously the other nations in the world aren't using that set of ideas because they're not getting the same results. If they plant the same seed, they will get the same results. America is not exceptional because America is America. Anybody can take what we did, the seeds we planted, and produce the same thing in their nation if they want to. The Bible, God is no respecter of persons. He's happy to do this for any other nation that wants to use that philosophy, apply those seeds, plant those seeds, they'll get the same harvest of crops. So within the framework of what philosophy produced it, the founding fathers told us. They gave it to us very explicitly. They gave it to us in the Declaration of Independence, the National Birth Certificate. There's 126 words that set forth five principles. I mentioned last night that there's 155 words that set forth six principles. The sixth principle of the Declaration says that if you don't do the first five principles, you have a right to change your government and get something different. So we're not going to talk about that principle. We're going to talk about the five principles that are so unique that, again, the Declaration says if you don't get these five, then you have the right to change it to get these five. So the five is what the emphasis is, and that's in 126 words. So let me take you through those words of the Declaration and show you the five things that were written in the Declaration. And by the way, I mentioned last night that in public school for years and years and years, for the first eight years of school, you took a written exam once a year on the Declaration of Independence because the Declaration cannot be separated from the Constitution. Um, to do so, you lose all the values and all the principles. As a matter of fact, let me just make a little commentary. I just was this last week with a, a group of folks writing a national document. Um, and in that document, we were talking about the Declaration. And there's a tendency for people who do not like morals to really fight the Declaration. For example, back at the time of abolition, when we were fighting slavery, 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s, in Congress, after the debates in Congress where the people would come forth and says, look, the Declaration says you have an inalienable right to liberty. And the pro-slavery guy said, that's the Declaration. We don't do the Declaration. We only do the Constitution. Well, if you separate the values from the Constitution, you can read the Constitution any way you want to. And that's why Article 7 of the Constitution directly incorporates the Declaration into the Constitution. To interpret the Constitution without the values of the Declaration will never work. You have a valueless government, and they can find any right they want. So we had a Declaration debate there for decades. 
Um, I remember very specifically as we moved forward into Roe v. Wade that as we made the arguments to Congress that there's an inalienable right to life in the Declaration. The head of the Judiciary Committee, Jack Brooks, head of the committee, wrote this letter that says the Declaration has no relevance to society today. We take an oath to uphold the Constitution, not the Declaration. The right to life doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution. Well, again, Article 7 brings the Declaration into the Constitution. Now we've got the same thing going with the laws of nature and nature's God. Very clear, that's traditional marriage. That's in the Declaration. We don't do the Declaration. The Supreme Court has ruled marriage is a new definition. Every time you want to change into a more biblically lawless direction, you want to ignore the Declaration. And so that's what you'll find. Every group across history does not like the Declaration because that's the one that injects the values into things. And we're at a point in America today where that everybody's values are self-defined, um, even among Christians. Polling shows right now among Christians, two out of three Christians do not believe there are any moral absolutes. Now, how can Christians believe that? Because, again, they have not read the Bible. We looked at that last night. Only 9% read the Bible daily. Only 2 to 3% have read through it from cover to cover. So we let the culture shape our Christian beliefs rather than the Bible. So I say all that about the Declaration, say the, these five principles, this is... This is where you get the whole philosophy of government. It's not the Constitution that gives you the philosophy. The Declaration gave you the philosophy. The Constitution came along and said, now that we've shown you the philosophy, here's how you operate within that philosophy. But if you take that and move it off the philosophy, you don't have the same foundation. You don't get the same results, and that's what we're seeing today in America. We can advocate the Constitution all day long, but when you separate it from the foundation in which it was built, it does not work well. So having said that, let's go into those principles of the Declaration. Declaration says, all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us we believe we have an open acknowledgement that there's a divine creator. Now, we're told by the court, and I mentioned last night, been involved in a lot of these cases, Supreme Court, and they deal with religious expressions. Nearly every one of them has. And what the court says, look, is here's the deal. We have religious people in America. We have non-religious people in America. And the position of government is to be neutral between the two. We're not going to take one. No, that's not what that says. They openly acknowledge there is a creator. And look what they say about it. They say that this is the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. We're all telling you, world, this is an announcement to the world. We're all telling you there's a creator. We're, everybody's agreed on that, and we are publicly announcing that in our government documents. They did not take a position of neutrality. They took a pro-God position. They said, we're telling you all there is a creator, and we openly acknowledge that. Now, we're at the point now where we say, well, you can't openly acknowledge that because there's people there who don't believe in God, and you can't. That's not a founding principle. The founding principle is there is a creator. Now, it's interesting to see the way this was dealt with because if you take, and, and by the way, We'll talk about limited government. You hear a lot about it. We really don't define that the right way. Limited government is limited according to jurisdictions, not according to its powers or anything else. Um, the first step in limiting government is to acknowledge that there's a creator. Why? Because we have just told government, government, there is something higher than you. You are not God. You may think you're God, and a lot of times you try to act like you are not. God is above you. So we've now created an order of jurisdictions. It's like having a captain above a lieutenant. 
I mean, that, that rank means something, and the, the, the captain can tell the lieutenant what to do and all the other ranks all the way down through. That's what we've just done with the government. We said, hey, government, you are not God. You cannot be God. God is God, and you're below God. So we've now said there are certain things that are hiring government. That's the first step in limiting government is for government to recognize it is not the end-all, be-all. So that's what we do in the Declaration. Uh, significantly, George Washington, <clears throat> when he did the first ever Thanksgiving proclamation in America, it was a call to prayer in America. And I mentioned last night that he did that because Roger Sherman and Elias Boudinot went to him and on the floor of Congress they used Bible verses to show that this was the right thing to do. Because on the day that they finished the Bill of Rights in Congress, um, they had a debate. It wasn't a debate. They had a discussion in Congress and they said, you know, biblically, when something this significant happens in a nation, we should be acknowledging God and thanking God. And so they quoted from Second Chronicles 5 through 7 how that when Israel had done something special, they finished the temple, that uh, you, you had Solomon who called in all, all the folks and, and they offered a thousand sacrifices and more sacrifices that can be counted. And they said, that's what we've just done. We finished the Bill of Rights. The proper thing to do is to have a national time of thanking God for the Bill of Rights. And so they asked George Washington, would you proclaim a day of thanksgiving because we just finished the Bill of Rights? And Washington did so. And this is his first, this is the first ever federal Thanksgiving proclamation. Uh, George Washington there at the bottom. Why would Washington do this? Now, he's been asked by Congress to do it. He doesn't have to. Why would he do it? He tells us why in the very first line. You see up top? He says, because, he said, it's the duty of all, and by the way, notice the word duty. The word duty is a significant word that doesn't mean as much to us today as it did to them back then. Back then, a duty was a legally binding contractual obligation. It's the same as if you wrote your name on a contract and sealed it. Now, in 1913, dictionaries changed the word duty to be that which one ought to do. Excuse me, they changed it to be a responsibility. And today, dictionaries say a duty is that which one ought to do. There's a heck of a difference between that which one ought to do and a legally binding contractual obligation. One is... Uh, I, I built houses for a number of, time, number of years in Texas. I'm out in the country. I mentioned last night I'm a cowboy. Out in the country, and I built houses, and I took hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans out of the bank to build a house. And the agreement between me and the bank president was, you give me this loan, I'll build the house, sell the house, give you the money back. And we exchanged hundreds of thousands of dollars across years. I never signed a contract ever for any of that money. We shook hands on it. That was all it was. We had a legally binding contractual obligation without any contract because it was our duty to pay that. His duty to loan it to me, my duty to pay it back once he loaned it. That's the way it used to be. Duty is, I mean, that is, it's like writing it in blood. You don't violate that. So George Washington said it's the duty, and notice it's the duty of nations. It's not the duty of individuals, which is where the court wants us to be today. If you want to mention God, that's fine, but we can't. No, he said it's the duty of nations. And notice the four verbs that he uses. George Washington said nations have a legally binding contractual obligation to do four things. To acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Nations are to obey his will. Nations are to be grateful for his benefits. And nations are to humbly implore his protection and favor. And that is the duty of nations. Nations have a legally binding contractual obligation to do that. And because they do, that's why I'm issuing this Thanksgiving proclamation. So that's the first principle that makes America different from other nations is we felt like we had a legally binding contractual obligation as a government, as a nation, to talk about God and put that out front. So that's the, that's the first principle of American exceptionalism. That's what we say in the Declaration. We announce to the world we believe there's a creator. And we believe 
that we have a legally binding contractual obligation to those, those four verbs that you just saw. Now, the second principle that comes out of the Declaration is they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. This tells us that there are a certain set of rights that come from God. They don't come from government. They come from God. The significance of that is that becomes a second step in limiting government because you're talking about jurisdictions. And, and let me see if I can explain it going to country stuff here. Um, I've got a nice red pickup on my ranch. I love my red pickup, Ford pickup. have it. We use it. It's a great tool. Notice Eric's got a pickup, but his is not Ford, and it's not red, and it ought to be. He's, he's got a white pickup. Who, who wants? So I go over and spray paint his pickup red because he needs a red pickup. No, I can't do that. Now, I can spray paint anything I want red that, if it belongs to me. I can make my barn red. I can spray my cattle red. I can spray my tractors red. I can't go over and spray someone else's property red. There's a jurisdictional distinction here. And, and what that is, inalienable rights come from God. What we have just done is says, government, this, this is an area that you can't spray paint red. These don't belong to you. This is not. And you, your turf is over here, and you can spray paint anything you want to red over here. But this stuff right here doesn't belong to you. It's out of your limits. It's out of your jurisdiction. You can't touch it. That's a second step to having limited government. Now, we don't have that today because government is into all sorts of inalienable rights telling us what we can and can't do. I mentioned last night the rights of conscience, 30 verses of the New Testament, four on protecting your policies to protect rights of conscience. The rights of conscience was considered an inalienable right. As a matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison both said it is the first of our inalienable rights. We had seven cases this year at the U.S. Supreme Court dealing with rights of conscience. Little Sisters of the Poor, last year it was Hobby Lobby. No, government has no right to spray paint that stuff red. Those are rights of conscience. They can't touch the rights of conscience under the old philosophy. That's where we had a limited government. Now, see, under the old philosophy, marriage doesn't belong to government. God defined that. Government didn't define it. God defined it way back in Genesis 1. He redefined it in Matthew 19. Therefore, it doesn't belong to government. You've got nothing to say about the definition of marriage. That's the old school philosophy of limited government. There's a certain set of areas that government does not get to touch. Now, as you look at, at, at that, what would be those areas that government can't touch? The founding fathers, fortunately for us, defined what an inalienable right is because the Declaration says there's a certain set of inalienable rights that come from God. John Dickinson, who was uh, one of the guys who helped draft the Declaration, became a signer of the U.S. Constitution. He said, an inalienable right is a right which God gave to you and which no inferior power has a right to take away. See, there's a jurisdictional line. If God told you you can do it, government can't tell you you can't. Nobody can tell you can't because if God told you, that's between you and God. And so that's an inalienable right. You have the same thing from Alexander Hamilton's sign of the Constitution. Alexander Hamilton said, inalienable rights are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They're written as with a sunbeam and the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by any mortal power. In other words, inalienable rights don't come out of government documents. They come from God. Now, in America, we took them and recognized them in government documents, and we told the, the Bill of Rights, recognized them, and says, government, you can't touch these rights because these are the God-given rights. Well, now the government regulates every one of those rights in, in the Bill of Rights, but it's, you don't look for them in, in, in government documents. That's not where they came from. They came from God. You have the same thing from John Adams who says, inalienable rights are antecedent to all earthly governments. They're rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws, 
their rights that are derived from the great legislator of the universe. But notice what he said. He says they're antecedent to all earthly governments. In other words, inalienable rights existed before governments existed. Now, what is the first human government in the history of the world? The very first government in the history of the world is the one that God gave Noah when he got off the ark. We're talking Genesis 9. Genesis 9, those, that government God gave Noah, they're called the Noahide Laws. There are seven categories of laws that God gave Noah. He said, here's what you do with murder. Here's what you do with theft. There are seven categories of laws. that came, They're called the Noahide Laws. That is the first government. So if inalienable rights are antecedent or come before earthly governments, that means inalienable rights are what come from Genesis 1 through Genesis 9. Before verse 9, chapter 9, verse 6. In other words, from Genesis 1 through 8. Inalienable rights, Genesis 1 through 8, what rights appear there? Well, the founding fathers identified almost two dozen rights that came before there was ever a government. And that's what they considered to be inalienable rights. Rights that came, and we'll look at those, those rights later. Uh, but that was inalienable right. Now, which ones are they? The founding fathers told us some in the Declaration. They said, well, among others, we've told you, in the, and Sam Adams, the, the father of the American Revolution, said it very clearly. He said that, among others, that we told you in the Declaration, there was first a right to life, secondly to liberty, thirdly to property. Those, those are three areas that you see in Genesis 1 through 8. Government can't regulate those areas because those are rights that come from God. But we didn't stop there because the Declaration said, among others, are life, liberty, property, um, so what you have is 11 years later after we have won the revolution and we now have established a constitutional government, uh, founding fathers said, you remember we told you 11 years ago that among others there were those three? Well, let us give you some of the others. And that's what you specifically get in the Bill of Rights. There's the First Amendment right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. There's a Second Amendment right for self-defense. There's a Third Amendment right for the sanctity of the home. There's a Fourth Amendment right for justice. You'd be treated with justice in legal proceedings. Go through all the amendments. Those are all inalienable rights that came before there was ever a government, the rights that, that God established. So that's what the Bill of Rights did was art, enumerate a number of those inalienable rights that government was not to touch. Now, that's the second philosophy. So there is a creator. The creator gives certain rights to man that government's not allowed to touch. Notice the third thing that the Declaration says. It says that to secure these rights, what rights? Inalienable rights. That to secure inalienable rights, governments are instituted among men. We now have the primary purpose of government. Government is not instituted to keep you safe. It's not instituted to protect the borders. It's not instituted to make sure we've all got jobs. Government's instituted to make sure that your inalienable rights are safe. After that, we can do everything else. First purpose is government. Now, let me, let me kind of put it in terms of that first government. Look at what happened with Noah. Remember what happened with Noah? Gets off the ship. God gives him seven laws. Now, what had happened was God gave an inalienable right to life. You had the right to be born. We'll talk about that more later, but that, that right to life was there. And suddenly, it gets violated. Cain kills Abel. And then you have murders going across the world. And it gets so bad, God says, I've got to wipe this out start again. You had theft. You had one stealing from another. It got so bad, God said, mm, can't. We had people violating inalienable rights. And so when God wipes out the world through the flood... Starts it again through Noah and his family. He says, Noah, here's the new way we're going to do things. Anybody that sheds innocent blood, 
Anybody that violates somebody else's inalienable right to life, Genesis 9, 6, got to be put down. You, who, whoso sheds man's blood by him, will his blood be shed. Now, the, that, that's the first verse toward capital punishment, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is we're going to protect other people's inalienable right to life. That's why I'm telling you right now, here's your seven, and here's what you do with people who steal someone else's private property. The first set of laws were all to protect what was supposed to be going on in Genesis 1 through 8 that was being violated by bad people in human nature. So every law in the Noahide laws were to protect something that God had previously given that was being violated. And so that is the primary purpose of government. That was the purpose that first government was instituted in Genesis 9. So what you have is government exists primarily to protect inalienable rights. Once it does that, then we can talk about borders. We can talk about military. We can talk about jobs. But not until we do this. That's the first primary purpose of government. James Wilson, who is a signer of both the Declaration and the Constitution, he's the second most active member at the Constitutional Convention. George Washington placed him on the Supreme Court as an original justice. He started the first law school in America. We didn't have law schools until he did it. He's sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court teaching law schools. And I have his original law books. And in those books, he's telling students why we created American government. And he says to them, the principal object of the principal object, the, the number one object of government, was to acquire a new security for the for the possession of those rights which we were previously entitled by the immediate gift of our all wise, all beneficent Creator. Now that's why we started a new government. Um, back up for a minute. That's why we started. He tells them. He said, "Look, we had this under Great Britain, but the king started violating all these God-given rights." And because he would not back off, and we worked with him 11 years to try to stop those violence, and because he wouldn't work off, we had to create a new security for the, those rights. And that's what the American government was to do, was to secure the rights that we used to have as British citizens that were now no longer being had. That was why we created a new security. So that, that's, what said, that's why we had the American Revolution, was to make sure government was protecting inalienable rights because it wasn't under the British system. Sam Adams has the same emphasis. Sam Adams says... Government was originally designed for the preservation of the inalienable rights. That's, that's the Noah story. I mean, that's, that's what God told Noah about that. Now, it's significant that Sam's also the one who said, first, a right to life, second, to liberty, third, to property. And so Sam says, government's instituted to protect rights, and the first right to protect is the right to life. And today we go, boy, wouldn't that have been cool if they had been talking about the abortion issue? Of course, that was an issue back then. That's a Roe v. Wade issue post-1970. You know, and, and that's what people think today. And that's not true. The Bible says there is nothing new under the sun. Human nature is the same. I mean, ever since you've had people who were pregnant, you had people who did not want to be pregnant. That's why the death of an unborn child was dealt with back in Jewish law, back in Leviticus and back in Deuteronomy. This is not a new... I actually have a book on abortion in America from 1808. This is not a, a new deal. Thomas Jefferson in the laws of Virginia had laws against abortion. Abortion is illegal in America. Abortion is not a new topic. They knew exactly what abortion was. Now, the technology is what's different. It's not the issue that's different. The technology is what's different. So they dealt with abortion back in their day. And when they said a right to life, they were talking abortion. That was part, as a matter of fact, you'll find that in their legal right. And, and James Wilson, in, in that law book I told you about, look what he told students about the right to life. He said, students... With consistency, beautiful and undeviating, human life from its commencement to its close is protected by the common law. He says, in the contemplations of law, life begins 
when the infant is first able to stir in the womb, and by the law that life is protected. Now, notice what he said here. When the infant first stirs in the womb. Now, why would they say that? Well, back then, how did you know for sure that you were pregnant? Well, when the infant first stirred in the womb. How long did it take you for the infant to stir in the womb? Well, you might be three months at that point. Their, their point was, as soon as you know there's life in the womb, at that point, life's protected. Now, this is where technology is different because today we know within eight days of conception that there's life in the womb. But the point is, as soon as you know there's life there, at that point, it's protected. And notice he said it's under the common law. That's the Seventh Amendment of the Constitution. See, when they argued abortion, they argued the Ninth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. No, it was a Seventh Amendment issue because the common law says life is to be protected from the point that you know that there's life in the womb. That was the responsibility of government, to protect the inalienable right to life. So that's what they did. By the law, that life is protected. Now, that's not where we are today, obviously. But see, this is the foundation that made America unique from all other nations. This is, this is the philosophy that we use. Now, let's continue with that. John Witherspoon was talking about how that our practice on not killing our children made us different from practices in Europe. Look what John Witherspoon said. He said, here in America, and he, he said, a perfect right in a state of natural liberty is the right to life. And there's that phrase again. He said, over in Europe, he said, in Europe, parents think that they make children. And because they do, Europe allows them to kill their children. You can kill unborn children in Europe. He said, in America, we know that parents don't give life to children. God gives life to children. We don't let parents kill their children. They don't come from the parents. They come from God. And that's why I said, in America, we've denied the power of life and death to parents. Again, that's what made us different from Europe. They believed that parents made children over there. We believe that God made children over here. We protect what God created. So that was our philosophy. That was our belief. The founding fathers did deal with abortion. They dealt with all these other types of issues we deal with today as well. So Sam Adams notably said, first is a right to life. Now, I want you to see the word first because I've been in the political arena for a long time. I held a political partisan office in Texas for nine years. Um, I've recruited hundreds of people for office. I've trained thousands of people to run for office. Uh, We have a network of about 800 state legislators. There's probably, I don't know, 100, 120 members of Congress I consider to be very good friends. I'm very political, very much in the political arena. And that word first is real important. Because I have found out that when anybody comes to me, if I deal with any candidate, any elected official, if I know where they are first on the life issue, if I can find out where they are on that issue, with a 90% degree of certainty, I can tell you how they will vote on every other issue they face. If I know where they are on life, I will tell you how they voted on the U.N. Small Arms Treaty. If I know where they are on life, I'll tell you how they voted on global warming and climate change. If I know where they are in life, I'll tell you what they did with the capital gains tax. Why is that? Because the right to life, as the founder said, is the first of your inalienable rights. If you don't get the first one right, you don't get the second, third, fourth, fifth right. In other words, if you get off the track, you're off the track. And all these other things over... So if I know where someone is on the right... If they won't protect your right to life, you know, newsflash, they're not going to protect your right to to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. Isn't it interesting? The most pro-abortion people are the ones who don't think Hobby Lobby should have a right of conscience, the little sisters of the poor should have a right of conscience. They don't think a kid should be able to say the word God at graduation. They don't think you should have an activity seen in public. It's interesting that people who don't protect life also don't protect the First Amendment right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. 
It's interesting, too, that the people who don't protect life, they don't protect your Second Amendment right to defend yourself. So stupid. What just happened? What just happened in France? Did a terrorist kill a bunch of people? No. The headline says a truck killed a bunch of people. No. You see, in their philosophy, people are always good and occasionally they do bad things, but they're always good. That's why if someone kills someone with a gun, it's the gun's fault because the person's good. They wouldn't kill somebody. See, it's the truck's fault because people are always good. No, in biblical belief, unless you get redeemed, you're going to do bad things all the way through. And so people who have the wrong view on life don't have a biblical view on life. They don't have a biblical view on human nature because humans are always good. And that's why if you find someone who gets drunk and abuses a spouse, you know, drunkenness, there's nothing they can do about that that's genetic. They just really can't help themselves. It's not their fault that they beat their wife. Really. You're not responsible for your behavior. You know, here's a guy that goes around, he's impregnated 20 different women and has children with all these. You know, it's not his fault. He just didn't get enough condoms when he was in school. They've given him more condoms. And so everything is built around that human nature is inherently good. No, the Bible teaches human nature is depraved, and unless you get it redeemed, it's not going to be good. So what happens with a non-biblical view on life is you say the truck killed all those people over in France. No, that's not what happened. So they're not going to protect your Second Amendment right to defense. You see, guns are inherently bad because people are always good. No, people are not always good, which is why you have a God-given right to defend yourself. We'll get to that later and talk, talk about that. The third thing is the, the right to the home, sanctity of the home, Third Amendment. It's interesting that those people who are wrong on the life issue are also wrong on the definition of marriage issue. They get that one. But see, if you get off track on the first thing, you're off track on everything else. If you're wrong on the life issue, you'll be wrong on the Fifth Amendment right to private property. That's where the Kelo decision came from. They're wrong on life. They say, you know what? That private property doesn't belong to you. Government has a right to take that property from you and give it to somebody else because it's really government's property. You're just a custodian for us and government. They got the wrong view on private property. If you get off on the life issue, you get now, granted, all of these are called social issues, and we're told continually by political pundits that people don't vote on social issues. They vote on economic issues. What matters, and by the way, they're pretty right because even 45% of evangelicals vote on economic issues more than moral issues. Now, that makes no sense from a biblical standpoint, but again, that means you have to know the Bible. But 45% of evangelicals vote pocketbook first when it comes to voting, and that's just not the right approach. The Bible says, it doesn't say economics exalts a nation, it says righteousness exalts a nation. Rights and wrongs are what you vote on, not economics. Nonetheless, let's, let's play the, the, the game that the pundits are right for a little bit and say, okay, we don't care about social issues. All we care about when we vote this, this election is going to be economic issues. That's all we care about. Well, if you care about economic issues, there's a ton of issues to look at. I mean, we got plenty of low-hanging fruit on this thing that we can look at. It's significant. Now, going back to life, I don't know if you're aware of, but every session of Congress, back up. I was recently with a group about 500 people, and I said, guys, session of Congress last two years. I want you to tell me every single issue you've heard Congress deal with in the last two years. And they got about a dozen issues that they could name and think of. Every session of Congress... Between 10 and 13,000 bills are introduced every session. They average about 1,000 votes in Congress per session, about 1,000 issues that they deal with, and we generally know about a dozen. 
because there are 10 to 13,000 bills introduced, you have all these groups that monitor and watch certain categories of votes. There's the Iran, Iran caucus. You see how every member votes on the dozen votes that they cast on Iran. There is the Navy caucus. I see how they vote on the 20 votes that deal with the Navy. There's the China caucus. There's, all, there's the pro-life caucus. You see how all these members... And when you get the pro-life caucus and you get pro-life votes, there's groups in D.C. that do nothing but watch the pro-life issues like National Right to Life. There, there's several groups that, that do nothing but watch the two dozen votes that will happen in a session of Congress on, on the life issue. And what they do is they come out at the end of every session with a scorecard. And they have it on the House of Representatives. They have it on the Senate, 435 in the House, 100 in, in the Senate. And so they will vote. Now, if you look at who the best life people are, who vote the best, those, those 435 in the House of Representatives who vote the best, there's a number that have 100 percenters there. You know, Matt Salmon, Justin Allison. You just go down to the And they're all ranked from 100 percenters down to zero percenters. They're all there. Every session that comes out, this is, this is where we are right now in Congress. So these are 100 percenters. But remember, we don't care about social issues. All we care about are economic issues. Well, if you care about economic issues, you want to look at the scorecards of people like uh, Americans for Prosperity because they do economic stuff. Um, the Freedom Works does economic stuff. Uh, National Taxpayers Union, they don't care a whit about Second Amendment or about marriage or about life. All they care about is economics. And it's interesting, if you will take the economic record of if you'll take the voting guide of economic records, watch what happens. Like for Americans for Prosperity, look for that. It's a one-to-one match. If you're good on life issues, you'll be good on economic issues. And by the way, for those that are the worst in Congress on life issues, you see the zero percenters? Bounce them off the economic issues like Americans for Prosperity, and you get a match. It's almost a one-to-one correlation. Now, that should not be surprising because guess what? If they won't protect your life, why would they protect your money? Because your life's more important than your money is. If they won't protect the big things, why would they protect the little things? So if you want to know where someone is going to be on any issue, the best thing you can do is have a litmus test of where are you on the life issue. Because if you get off track on life issue, you will be off track on everything else that goes on in government. So that's the third principle of American exceptionalism is there is first a right to life. And that will tell you about social and economic issues. But that just underscores the fact that government exists first and primarily to protect your inalienable rights. Now, the fourth thing the Declaration tells us is that to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them. This clause tells us that there is a fixed moral law. How did you get that out of that? Real easy. There were eight words there. The laws of nature, nature's God. They don't mean a lot to us today. They mean everything to people back in that day. They came out of the most famous book in that generation, Blackstone's Commentaries on the Law. Thomas Jefferson said American, American attorneys read Blackstone's the same way that Muslims read the Koran. They were into that. And we taught about this out of the pulpit. I cannot tell you how many sermons I have that deal with the laws of nature and nature's God. See, what Blackstone and what those sermons explained was the laws of nature and nature's God is a dual revelation of God. And people say, oh, that's heresy. There's not two revelations. Yeah, there is. There's a dual revelation of God. Do you remember that in Romans 1, Paul, and I, I believe the word of God is inerrant, inspired, and infallible. I believe it's God's word, period, end of story. It's right all the time. Paul says in Romans 1, everything, and I don't know about you, I I get critics at times that say, you know, you Christians, you say you have a, how can you have a loving God? How would a loving God throw people into hell that have never heard the gospel before? How can you say he's a loving God? What do you say to stuff like that? 
I say exactly what Paul said in Romans 1. Paul said that everything that can be known about God, including the intricacies of the Godhead, that's in the scriptures, including the knowledge of the Godhead, and that's a theological doctrine been debated for a few thousand years. Paul says everything you can know about God, including the intricacies of the Godhead, have been revealed through what he has created so that even the heathen are without excuse. Time out. See if I get this. What I see in nature is sufficient to tell me everything I need to know about the doctrines. Yeah? But see, none of us pay much attention to nature. That's why in Psalm 46.10 we're told to be still. Know that I'm God. If you can be still, you will know what God is. I cannot tell you, living in the country, how many times I can just sit down and start I watch ants in an ant mound, and I learned that I should have a savings account. <laughs> How'd you get that? Because the ant stores up his provision. He understands that there's a season of time he's going to harvest, and he's not going to be able to get seeds all year long. And so he's packing them in there because he's going to live off that for nine months after it gets really cold and fall. I need a savings account. And by the way, that also teaches me about national economics. There are periods of growth periods of death like winter periods of neutrality where nothing's really growing so you've got the spring which is a period of growth you've got the uh, uh, the summertime which is not a period of growth you got the fall where things are diminishing you got the winter where things are dead what the federal government tries to do is play like it's always spring they try to budget when it's always growth you ought to be budgeting when it's winter because there's times when things will not grow. And that's, and that's what you learn in the countries. You can watch a, a, an ant mound and figure out. That's what they're talking about in Proverbs 6. Go to the ant sluggard. Stores up his There's just so many things you get out of nature that, boy, if the federal government would even study nature, you'd have a whole different approach to everything from economics to social programs to military programs to whatever. So the Bible says everything you can know about God is right there. Now, as Blackstone pointed out, once Adam sinned, kind of messed up our thinking so God says okay in compassion to your frailty now that you have a sin consciousness you're not thinking straight let me make it really easy for you I'm going to write it down for you and that's the scriptures so you have the laws of nature what he's put in nature and you have the laws of the God who created nature which is what he put in the scriptures and you will find that those two things never contradict each other. Those two things, that, that's the dual revelation of God. They're consistent. It's that on the sin side, we don't think straight. So he said, all right, let me make it really easy. Let's just write it down. Let me show you how this works. The laws of nature and nature's God. Let's just take the laws of nature from it. We're, we're not going to use the Bible at all in this little reasoning exercise. We're going to use the laws of nature. So one of the laws of nature, what does the laws of nature tell us about self-defense? Now, that's the Second Amendment. I could use Exodus 22.2. I could go through uh, John 17. I could go through Nehemiah 4 and 6. I'm not going to. We're not going to use any Bible verses on self-defense. We're only going to say, what are the laws of nature? Now, I told you I'm a cowboy. I, I like being in rough areas, rugged areas. As a matter of fact, my idea of a vacation is I get with a pastor friend of mine who's always a, also a cowboy, and we take off, and we go into really rugged areas, and we'll try to get back into areas where nobody's been before, see what they're like. We'll try to get lost in the mountains, find a new way out. So we're always looking for rugged stuff to ride. And when you do that with a trail horse, you have to have a horse that you're really bonded with because your life depends on it. When I come to the edge of a cliff and I stick the nose of my horse off that cliff and say, go down that goat trail right there. Horse has got to do that, or we're both in trouble. We have trouble on that trail. I'll lose my life. She'll lose her life. 
So you want, when you get to the bottom, you got to swim a river, you want a horse that'll do it. So you really have a good relationship. So we really treat our trail horses really well because you got a good relationship, you got to think together. And in doing that, one of the trail horses we had, great trail horse. This mare was a great trail horse, and she ended up having a little foal. And when that foal was born, going to the barn to feed her, you'll come out with a hoof print in the middle of your forehead. What's the deal? We've been friends for years. Yeah, but it kicks into her. Once she has a child, I'm going to protect my child. You're not going to mess with my child. And by the way, this is my barn. Get out of my... It's not your barn. I built it for you. I'm the one who feeds you there. Yeah, but in her mind, that's where she lives. Notice that in nature, there is an inherent natural instinct to defend themselves, to defend their families, and to defend their property. And it doesn't matter whether it's a horse, a cow will do the same thing. Boy, you get around a calf and watch, watch out for flying hooves. Or if they got horns or if they're an angus, they'll butt you with their head and just run over you and pound you. I mean, it's, it's all over nature. That's a, that's a law of nature. You have the right inherently to defend yourself and your family and your property. So that's a natural lie. I don't need the Bible to confirm that one. Uh, liberty. That's real easy. There's 10 million identified species in nature. There is not a known species in nature that enslaves any other species. So anything that puts in slavery, which we have going on right now in the Muslim part of the world, sex trafficking and everything else, it violates the laws of nature. Well, why didn't the founding fathers believe that? All a bunch of slave owners. No, they weren't. About 30% of the founding fathers owned slaves, and the other 70% kept saying, guys, that violates the laws of nature. It also violates the laws of nature's God. Whether you want to use scriptures or what you're doing, what you're doing in holding slaves is not natural. It violates the law. And so that was the argument also used in court cases against slavery was it violates the laws of nature. Nothing in nature. Same with uh, you take the issue of abortion. Ten million species in nature, there's not a single species in nature that kills its young while it's still in the womb. I don't care whether you believe in evolution or creation. I'm a creation guy. You believe in evolution, great. Show me anything in your system that kills young while it's still in the womb. It doesn't exist. Abortion is a violation of the laws of nature. You have the same thing with homosexuality. Ten million species, there's a half a dozen that have occasions of homosexuality, but it's never a lifestyle. It's an aberration even in those aspects of nature where that it occasionally exists. Even there, it's an aberration. You have the same thing with transgender. I mentioned last night, just real quickly, that we went into the Black Hills, uh, into the Badlands of North Dakota. And so we did this cattle roundup, and we pushed these cattle out of the mountains and across the plains. We got them all together in the pens. Once we got on the pens, we started roping the calves and bringing them out. And so then we'll get on them. I'm in the middle there with the hat, with the plaid shirt. And so the guy on the right's putting the ear tag in. The other two guys hold the calf. And then I'll step in, and I'll give the injection. That's a girl on the left and a guy on the right. And anybody can see that that's a heifer. There's no question about it. We had no difficulty knowing what gender we dealt with for 580 calves. There's no transgender in nature. It violates the laws of nature. That's only in our heads up here where we don't want to accept what God has said one way or the other. So, I mean, the laws of nature are really clear on things like that. I don't, I don't need the scriptures. Scriptures, God tells us four times, and he also says you don't dress like a man doesn't dress like a woman, and a woman doesn't dress like... Scriptures are clear on all that. Um, you also have property... Same thing in nature. From the time that you're born, you will stake out what you consider to be your property. That's where you live. Now, when you die, someone else will take it. It's like the horse in the barn. That's her property. As long as she's there in that barn, property. That's an inherent law of nature is you have a certain set of property. Um, when you have the right to make a living, nature doesn't guarantee that you will succeed, but everything born in nature has the right to try to make a living for itself. 
Now government steps in and says, oh, you can't make a living doing that, and you can't do that, and we have to regulate this over here. Those are all new regulations that have come in. You're right to try to make a living. The Bible doesn't guarantee success. Nature doesn't guarantee success. Guarantees the right to try. Expatriation. Expatriation is a big deal. Um, what happened recently with an expatriation, actually in the Constitution, people don't recognize it, but you had North Carolina say, hey, we're not going to do this one-bathroom stuff. And you had the governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, said, we're not going to, Pastor Protection Act, we're not going after pastors who refuse to do homosexual weddings. Well, Governor Cuomo in New York said, all right, I'm not allowing any employees in the state of New York to travel to New York or to travel to Mississippi. Those are bigoted states. None of my employees can travel there. You have just violated the inalienable right of expatriation. Guaranteed in the Constitution, expatriation means the right to move freely between locations. I'm an elk. I'm tired of this herd. I'm going to hang out with this herd. No, I don't like that. I'm going to this herd. No, I don't like that. I'm going to hang out with the horses for a while. No, see, you have the right to move freely between where you hang out. There's, there's no barriers to tell you what group you can or can't belong to, and that's why the Constitution calls it the Privilege and Immunities Clauses. You cannot take the right to, to move between states away from anybody. That's expatriation. That's what the Constitution guarantees. You also have the right of accumulation of profit. Um, nobody tells a squirrel, you've got too many acorns. Share your acorns with somebody else. You can accumulate as many as you want. Pack rat can do the same. A beaver can do the same. There's nothing. You don't punish those who have too much accumulation. They have the right to accumulate as much as they can handle, as much as they can get. And by the way, there's a, a biblical parable on that in Luke 19. You also have the right of association. You have the right to hang out with the herd that you want to hang out with. If I want to hang out with the Anguses, I can. If I want to hang out with the Herefords, I can. If I want to hang out with the Brangus, I can. You've got the right of association. That's the law of nature. So these are all things the Founding Fathers wrote about as being rights that existed before Noah came along. So these are inalienable rights. These are rights that we get to protect. What does the Bible tell us? Uh, excuse me. We're not using the Bible. What does the laws of nature tell us about theft? It gets a little complicated here. I got four horses. When I feed my four horses, none of them eats their own food. They all go for the food of the other horses. <laughs> appears to me theft is pretty common in nature. What do you do with adultery? Ooh, that's common in nature. That's why you have one bull and 40 cows in every herd. Monogamy is not common in nature. So adultery is common in nature. How about incest? Oh, yeah, that's real common in nature. That's why a cowboy doesn't ride a Mustang. Mustangs have been inbred for so many generations. They have no stamina, no strength. They've been on the range together with their families for so long. Mustangs, we just don't do much with. Occasionally you get a good one, but generally Mustangs not what you want. Incest is common in nature. How about murder? That's real common in nature. Ever seen what a skunk does inside a hen house? They don't go in there to eat. They spread blood everywhere. Well, now, wait a minute. If we're talking the laws of nature, theft, adultery, incest, murder, that's common in nature. So what's the problem? This is where we have the laws of nature's God. See, the laws of nature's God steps in and says, let me just tell you, don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Between the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God, you get a moral law. This is where we get our, our morality from, is the laws of nature and nature's God. And that's what the Declaration says, is we have a fixed set of moral laws. And that's why homosexuality, that's why abortion, that's why all these other things were violations of the common law, as James Wilson said. That's part of the Seventh Amendment. That's our fixed moral law. It comes out of the Scriptures. We call it the common law in the Constitution, but it's the same thing. So that's the fourth point. The fifth point, 
Oops, I'm getting right at time. The fifth point is that governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So the fifth thing we teach in the Declaration is the will of the majority, the consent of the governed. Let me show you some quotes on that. Here's a quote from George Washington. George Washington says, The fundamental principle of our Constitution requires that the will of the majority shall prevail. You also have uh, Thomas Jefferson. He's in the other political party, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Jefferson said the same thing. He says, the will of the majority, the natural law of every society, is the only sure guardian of the rights of man. And by the way, that is exactly why the founding fathers did not allow the Senate to have a filibuster. You see, the problem with the Senate right now is 40 votes beats 60 votes every day in the week. You can have 59 members of the 100 in the Senate vote for something, and they'll lose every time because there's 40 that oppose it. See, that's not the consent of the governed. And, that's, and the, the filibuster, they call that a tradition of the Senate. Mm, sorry, that only came in the 1970s. It's not a tradition of the Senate. It's a violation of the consent of the governed. And that's why the House last session passed 282 laws that they could not even get the Senate to pick up. We just this week passed the Conscience Protection Act in the House that says you cannot force a person to participate in abortions against their conscience. You can't make medical professionals perform abortion. If a nurse doesn't want to, a doctor doesn't want to, you can't force them. Now, Illinois has been forced and trying to force them to for years. Conscience Protection Act says no, you, you respect the rights of conscience. We will never get a vote on that in the Senate. Because there are 40 guys over there, 40 folks over there that think abortion should be mandatory and that you should always force doctors to do it. Now, that's not the consent of the government, and that's why the founding fathers never allowed. They talked about filibusters and never allowed them back in the day. So there's another area where we're off track. But nonetheless, that's the fifth point. Now, when you look at these five points on the, on, on the, the things that we have there in the Declaration, the first one is there is a divine creator. The divine creator gives certain inalienable rights. Government exists to protect those rights. There is a fixed moral law, and then there is the will of the majority, the consent of the governed. Now, notice where the consent of the governed falls. The consent of the governed falls number five in those points. People today say it's number one in those points. If we vote on it, whatever the majority decides, that's it. Not so. The majority is not allowed to vote on inalienable rights. We can have a referendum that says we'll have no more right of self-defense. That referendum can pass 97 to 3, and it makes no difference because you don't vote on inalienable rights. They come from God. It doesn't belong to government. It's outside the jurisdiction. Same with the moral law. We can have a referendum that says rape is no longer a crime. We just passed it by 78 to 22 percent. doesn't matter what your vote was. It's always a crime because it violates the laws of nature and nature's God. The will of the majority is never allowed to deal with inalienable rights or to deal with fixed moral laws like marriage. That's not votable under the original philosophy. So that's the stuff that made us different from every other nation. And notice that four of those five are God-centered. That's why a secular government will never be a limited government. You name me any secular government in the world today and see if it's limited. You can't say that about Germany. They're actually throwing parents in jail who try to educate their kids at home. They're my kids. No, they're the state's kids. As a matter of fact, if you're in Scotland, from the time your kid is born, at the hospital, they assign a government agent to be the liaison with your kid and the government for the rest of their life. And the government's responsible for you. See, here we don't believe that children are wards of the state. The rest of the world does. 
So a secular government's not going to be limited. Is France a limited government? Absolutely not. To share your faith, they call that a violation of the rights of proselytization. You cannot share your faith in France. We have the right of free speech here. We have the right to, to a cow has the right to move whenever it wants to. I had one outside my door the other night, 1230 in the morning, standing right by the porch, mooing. That's the right of free speech. You, you can, you know, express yourself. That's part of nature. So a secular government will never be eliminated. Greece, Turkey, Norway, Sweden, anything in Scandinavia, go across Brussels, go through Belgium. You'll never find a secular government that's limited government. Government always thinks it's God. It manages every single right of its people. You don't have freedom in those things. And that's why significant Thomas Jefferson, we talked about him last night, one of the two least religious founding fathers, the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., has five quotes inside of it, four tableaus of stone on the walls and one around the dome up top. And it's interesting, they went through Jefferson's hundred volumes of writings, took out what they considered to be five greatest statements of Jefferson. Four of the five are absolutely God-centered. Now, that's interesting. When 80% of the political rhetoric of your least religious founding fathers is God-centered, what's it tell you about it? This is a quote that is one of those tableaus on the wall. comes out of the first book he ever wrote. He wrote a book in 1781 called Notes on the State of Virginia. And in it, he says, And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis? Newsflash, what does our least religious founding father believe that the basis of our national liberties are? He says, it's a conviction, notice conviction, it's a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are of the gift of God, that they're not to be violated but with his wrath. He said, indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justice can't sleep forever. He said, the only way we have secure national liberties is to have a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties come from God and that if you start messing around with them, you're going to tick him off, and then we're all going to be in trouble. That's Jefferson's position on national liberties. See, he, chief author of the Declaration, four of those five major points, all God-centered. That's the only way you get a government to work right. And it doesn't matter, by the way, whether it's a local government or a federal. I told you I'm involved in politics a lot, and so I get a lot of people come to me and want my endorsement. They think that helps them in a race, and so congressman or whatever. And, you know, here comes the dog catcher, and I'm running for dog catcher. Would you endorse me for dog catcher? And I go, well, hang on here just a second. Um, you run for dog catcher? Yeah. I want to know what your position is on abortion. Dog catcher. We don't deal with that. I, I know. I, I know. But if I know your position on abortion, I know where you are on a philosophy of government. And the problem is you may not stay dog catcher. You might end up running for school board. You might run for city council. You might run for state rep. You might run for state senator. You might run for governor. It's a heck of a lot easier to knock you off as a dog catcher than it is to knock you off as a governor. <laughs> and so you start with the conviction that certain things come from God, like the right to life, and we, we apply that all the way from top to bottom. We don't just say, oh, you're in the legislature now? Where are you on abortion? Oh, you're on a water utility board? Where are you on abortion? See, that's a philosophy that we want enforced. I don't care what your responsibilities are. Do you adhere to the philosophy that made us exceptional? And that philosophy is that there is a creator. He gives certain rights. 
and government exists to protect those rights. And the first of those rights is the right to life. There's a fixed moral standard because if you don't think abortion's wrong, then you don't think other moral rights and wrongs exist. You'll think anything else is right. If you think you can kill an unborn child, then tell me what you're going to think is wrong. What you're going to think is wrong is telling me I can't kill an abortion. It's, their whole th- system is skewed. So Jefferson, I mean, that, that statement right there, that's the only way you preserve America as a secure nation is going back to those five principles. So that's what I want you to be aware of. These are the principles that produced our exceptionalism. This is what made us different from all others. Um, again, if you're interested in this, the table was out there last night, and you guys hit it, and you're welcome to hit it again for any of those products we have. But exceptionalism, this is why we're different from all other nations. Eric, yours, bro.